I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm Noelle LaCroix. And this is Orgasm, the podcast from Chipperish Media where we reach for explosive inspiration. Each episode, we'll dive into a topic that sparks our creative energy, and we'll talk about that topic through our ideas framework. Ideas is an acronym for identification, discovery, exploration, analysis, and synthesis. Today's orgasm is an exploration of mythology. And it is also a three-way. I chose mythology for today's discussion because when we were making a list of topics, it sounded like fun. But then I hit serious writer's block trying to write notes about mythology. But luckily, one of our friends who helps me fight writer's block like a cape crusader fighting a mugger wanted to talk to us about (laughs) mythology. (laughs) So, So welcome to our special guest, fellow Chipperish Media podcaster, Joshua Unruh. Hey, thanks for having me in your mythajatois. <laughs> okay. Hey, well All right. done. <laughs> okay, he can stay. Yeah. I was about to say, you're speaking Noel's love language right off the bat, coming oh, in with, yeah. with tons. This is the kind of quality content you invited me here to create, you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 So in addition to being a witty writer of puns, Joshua Unruh, Pulp Diction Productions, is a superhero scholar, writer, and podcaster. So Joshua, why don't you tell folks a little bit about you? Well, I mean, that pretty much covers it. I write things. (laughs) I podcast about things. A lot of the things that I write and podcast about are superheroes. But not only, I write lots of different types of fiction. And you can find out all about the fiction that I write. It's like uh, weird westerns and Viking fantasy and uh, mystery men. And I I write about a lot of stuff. And you can find that all at joshuaunruh.com. And since I'm new to this show, I'll spell it. J-O-S-H-U-A-U-N-R-U-H.com. And you can find all the podcasts, which are 100% superhero focused in one way or another, at pulpdiction.biz. And that's diction with a D, friends, because we talk on podcasts. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, every time I write anything about you, uh, I get autocorrected. And it always tries to change diction to fiction. And I'm like, no, damn it. It starts with a D. Yeah, we know what we're doing, autocorrect. Get off our cloud. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but anyone listening to the show who is familiar with the wider Chipperish catalog has definitely heard me deconstructing the Marvel Cinematic Universe on Listen Up A-Holes, our MCU podcast. So yes. that's, that is where you most likely know me from. But there's some other stuff that might be worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us today because uh, I kind of got nothing and I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> I love that this is your topic and you have nothing. I know. <laughs> I think that when I heard you guys were doing mythology, like I saw that some weeks ago on the calendar and I was like, I would really like to be a part of that show. And I feel like at that moment, both of you were just like, cool, checked out. None of our problem now. <laughs> well, I was checked out sort of from the get go, which gets us into identification, oddly enough, um, because this is such a huge sweeping topic for which I have absolutely nothing to say, probably because it is so huge and sweeping, as counterintuitive as that whole statement is. Um, 
My first thought when Kelly proposed mythology as a topic was of classical and Greek myths and how those have influenced Western culture and storytelling. And then I got bogged down in the idea of Western culture itself and how that notion is super problematic and kind of not really a thing. And how as a white person just beginning to unlearn the mythology of these systems of oppression in which I am both oppressed and oppressor, I feel totally unequipped to speak on this topic in a way that adds to any conversation at all. So that's where I am. (laughs) Super chipper. I think right away you're already saying some pretty important things about mythology. If nothing else, you're suggesting that it is still an important concept to the modern post-enlightenment human being, right? Because oh, absolutely. these stories that we tell ourselves about how society works or is supposed to work or used to work and should work again or whatever, who's who within it, I mean, that's all still a certain type of mythology. So you've got more going on than you think. <laughs> well, it's just such a giant can of worms to open up and... That's a whole lot of worms, you guys. Like <laughs> Kelly, what the hell were you thinking? I know, right? Well, okay. So Oh no, that's not a rhetorical question. No. <laughs> well <laughs> when when we were making the list for orgasm, first of all, understand that we made this list while I think we were both in the car. I know I was in the car. We were on the phone. And we were just like throwing out topics, ideas. And I was like, what about this? What about this? What about mythology? Blah, 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 blah. Because all I was thinking about were like things that light up my brain. And like some of those came in big topics like magic and nature and that kind of stuff. And some of them came in very small memory flashes. And that's where mythology came from. And so when I think about mythology, like I have the bigger definition, you know, that myths are symbolic and metaphorical stories about human culture and human nature. But the flash for me was back to 10th grade English class when I had this amazing teacher who taught us a unit on Greek mythology and stood up on his desk to like shout out lines from the Iliad and the Odyssey to get our attention. And... (laughs) That's just kind of where, because it was this beautiful mix of story and pedagogy. So, of course, y'all know that just lit up my brain like crazy. And so, I don't know. I have no good excuse for (laughs) choosing this as a topic, except I was like, I remember learning about this and feeling that light bulb go off because I had had like... The super basic lessons, you know, Zeus is the god of this and Demeter is the goddess of this and all of that before. But there was something about that class and like hearing him, the teacher, talk about why mythology matters and how it plays into other stories that just woke me up, I guess, to the idea of this enduring storytelling. And I fell in love with the whole thing. This was the same teacher that brought Shakespeare to life and introduced me to Flannery O'Connor. So, like, 10th grade English was big, y'all. I mean, this was, like, a a big deal. Those are are really good pulls for mythology because Flannery O'Connor knows exactly what's up. Oh, yeah. And I like to horrify English majors by declaring that Shakespeare is just Ovid fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not wrong at me. (laughs) 
Shakespeare is Ovid fan fiction. Okay. It's also predominantly flowery dick and fart jokes. So, I mean, just everybody needs to chill out. He's great, (laughs) but let's not go crazy, you know. (laughs) Well, and I, you know, being the maybe shallow creature that I am, when I was learning all of this in that class, like 10th grade was also the year I found the Indigo Girls who probably had a bigger impact on me than all the literature I ever studied mixed together. But one of their songs, Ghost, is like one of my favorites, makes a reference to launching a thousand ships and like Achilles heel. And it was my first conscious intertextual experience of like understanding that, oh, these things from mythology have now found their way into song lyrics. And oh my God, that's a thing. Like stories can reference each other. And I had no awareness of this before that class. And it just like, it was amazing to me. And then as a baby freshman, I took a class in college called Great Books 101. And our professor, who was a very staid, tweeted literature PhD, was teaching Hades and Persephone. And he brought in a pomegranate. And I never had one before. So like that, it just kind of stuck with me that like, this was really, really cool Um, And then I took a class in semiotics and we had a lesson about mythology and symbiotics and how it translates and like what the Nike swoosh means and how it relates back to ancient mythology. And then I was just kind of a goner because, you know, what endures and why, what meanings and symbols and stories stay with us and why do they stay with us? And the whole thing just fascinates me. So it's big and messy, Noel. I have no, no neat, tidy outline for this. Yeah, there's there's no neat and tidy outline. I I love bringing semiotics into it though. That's kind of mm-hmm. great. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Talk semiotics to me, baby. Yeah, I was going to say before you guys devolve into just, you know, light moaning at one another, you want to throw out semiotics for the listeners at home? <laughs> Okay. Too late. Already moaning. <laughs> mm, yes, I do. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so semiotics <laughs> is the study of meaning and symbolism, right? So, yeah, things are signs or signifiers, and there's significance within them. So, the the super most simplest basic example I can think of is when you see a red octagon. Why does it mean stop sign? Like, how did culture decide that? How did that become common knowledge? How does that symbol represent stop? And then you take that and multiply it across every symbol that humans use. And you start studying that. And you declare it as your major. And then your family freaks out because what kind of job are you ever going to find studying semiotics? So then you change your major back to communication. But you take all the (laughs) semiotics classes you can get your hands on. Boy, this definition got... Autobiographical. That was. It's the best I got. No, it's great that you bring semiotics into it. I don't know how you talk about mythology without semiotics because mythology is 100% semiotics, top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joshua Henry, tell us your definition or identification with mythology since I might get us off track a little bit if I don't shut up. So, 
So the definition that I have always appreciated the most, and I really wish I could cite my source for this, but it's just lost to the mists of time. I picked it up, you know, kind of along the way. But it's that mythology is the stories a culture tells itself about itself. Mm. So I love that. this is this is the thing that like when you look at classical mythology, you look at what the Greeks told stories about. These were the stories that they used to explain to themselves what being Greek meant. Right. And what's kind of cool, you start digging into it, is that it's not all rosy, you know? Like, there were stories Mm -hmm. where it didn't work out and where being Greek maybe wasn't the best way to handle, you know, an issue. I mean, that's just – I just use them as the example because, as you mentioned, Noel, that's Western civilization. So that's probably the one that people have the most familiarity with. But – but yeah, the stories a culture tells itself about itself. And at a, at a rudimentary level, this is like, these are the stories you tell your kids because you're starting to pass on what you consider to be acceptable behavior or ideals to look into, to, to strive for, you know. But, but the fact that this is adults also telling these stories and retelling these stories to themselves and others means it's more than that too. But I mean, don't lose that piece of it. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. about what it means to be us. And mm-hmm. what does it mean to be us for real? And what does it mean to be us aspirationally? And what does it mean to be us kind of also at our worst? All that stuff. That's all mythology. Yeah, I like that definition. Okay, so discovery, right? Like, how did you come to mythology in the first place? Mm-hmm. And I mean, Kelly, you shared some of that as your explanation for why it continues to fascinate you, right? Yep. In my case, I mean, part part of how I came to mythology first will be completely unsurprising to people who follow the rest of my work. Like I have read comic books, superhero comic books since before I could actually read them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And while I largely dismiss the idea of superheroes as modern mythology in any kind of like really meaningful sense, because there's, there's a whole other conversation we'll have later. I'm sure where it's sort of difficult to have mythology after literature because literature's on purpose and mythology accretes. Different conversation, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the other place besides superhero comics, you guys will super appreciate this, I think, was from the Deities and Demigods book from Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I love oh, that. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had some picked up some Greek mythology books at the library at some point or whatever. And I've also been, you know, like like playing various types of tabletop role-playing games forever, but the the thing about deities and demigods that just sang to my little heart was it was it was like world religion class combined with uh, DC who's who because it would be like here's a name <laughs> here's other names they're known by here's some stats in case you want to murder them because it's Dungeons and Dragons that's what it's about right Dungeons and Dragons is about killing monsters and taking their stuff and eventually you need really big monsters if you keep taking all their stuff so <laughs> here's a god here's how to kill it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Now, um, the really, really fascinating intertextual piece there is that, again, this is world religions because they had everything that was classical. And there was some, I'm sure, very badly handled near Asian (laughs) and far Asian, you know, pantheons. But also H.P. Lovecraft, the Cthulhu Uh. mythos was in this book right alongside all the rest of them. And it was just, I didn't really realize what I was absorbing at the time, but it was just a way to think about these things, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that like gamify them, gamify the stories of other cultures 
And I mean, later I would call that rewriting because I mean, I'm just turning them into my own stories, right? That's how, Mm -hmm. that's how all this works. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Taking of stories and reshaping them and making them fit into these different spaces and engaging with them on multiple levels. No, it makes total sense. So, Noelle, do you have any of that in your discovery? I mean, do you recall like your first brush with mythology? Does that stand out to you? Um, Not really, probably because I was such a a bookish kid and we were just always at the library and I probably came across, you know, some of these stories. I remember I remember reading a lot of fairy tales, which, of course, are related Mm -hmm. in the, you know, the like folklore kind of lines. My first memory of studying uh, Greek mythology was in, I think, sixth grade. And I remember we did a like we did a Greek myths unit in school, mm-hmm. and that was my first real like formal <laughs> introduction mm-hmm, to this mm-hmm. idea. But all of the but a lot of those names and the the stories connected to them were familiar to me at that point. So I think that for me, it's just something that kind of wove its way into all of my reading um, and being read to growing up. I think I missed out. A lot as a kid, not <laughs> not being allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons and mythology wasn't really something I was encouraged to read. But I did, I think I stumbled on some of it by accident because I fell in love with Lloyd Alexander's books when I was really little. Um, and this was like the Book of Three and the Black Cauldron and the High King. And there's a mix there of fantasy and fairy tale and mythology, but it kind of built a mythology of that world in my head and I love those books and then you know I had the classic Greek mythology in school and in college but then after college I really found mythology through Doctor Who and I have been trying to figure out for a long time why I love Doctor Who so much and I realized that part of it is because the show builds its own mythology and it's not gods and goddesses necessarily but it does build this mythos of this world, and I just love it. Um, and I found this really cool quote from Neil Gaiman, who said, Doctor Who was the first mythology that I learned before ever I ran into Greek or Roman or Egyptian mythologies. And I thought that was so cool that, like, as a kid, you know, that that was a mythology he engaged in. And I wondered how that influenced his writing and some of the stories that he's come up with since. Um, And I'm reading his Norse mythology right now. So that quote just kind of really spoke to me. And I think about the other mythology stories that I love. And some of them are silly, but I don't care because (laughs) I will watch Disney's Hercules over and over again. (laughs) That's a fantastic movie. Right? Disney's Hercules is one of the best Superman stories that's ever been, like, put on film. Oh, excellent. I feel very validated because I love that movie. (laughs) It's not a very good Hercules story, like Ah. as far as relating to whatever source material we have, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's by accident that Disney's approach to Hercules was, so you guys think Superman then? Because this other thing is kind of jacked, right? You know. (laughs) Interesting. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was thinking about um, the show Once Upon a Time, which is also kind of silly, but I love it. But they do a season in the underworld with Hades. And I found it utterly delightful. So it just kind of cracked me up. <laughs> but then on the dark side of stories, I recently found um, Kashiel's Dart 
which is a series that has been on my to be read list for probably 10 years. And then I had a friend who was like, you have to read this. And I, I got it on audio. Um, and it builds its own deeply religious mythology, but in a way I've never seen done before. And it was fantastic. But my go-to is always going to be Hades and Persephone and Psyche and Cupid because they're my favorites. And I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan, but I love his version of Psyche and Cupid, which he wrote as a novel called Till We Have Faces. And that was also as a surprise for me, like realizing that C.S. Lewis also wrote for adults, because as a kid, I just thought of him as the line, the witch in the wardrobe. But I stumbled on that book in the library on accident one day, Noel, which I thought you would like. Yay! And I absolutely <laughs> loved it. I'm not surprised that uh, you and Gaiman can use Doctor Who as, you know, as a mythology, because it's got a lot of overlap with... um I'm very bad. I may not do his name very well, but uh, Zhuan Zhang, mm-hmm. he's he's a he's a Buddhist monk who traveled around China during the Tang Dynasty, stopping chaotic things from happening like demons and stuff. Oh. And he always had these couple of companions. And one of them was uh, Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, who always got the rest of them into more trouble. Huh. Which sounds like Doctor Who's companions. Like, we're just going to blunder <laughs> through this thing. Oh, hey, godlike being, could you come and clean up this mess behind us? You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because uh, Zwan Zhang is a, he's a bodhisattva. Like, he is. He has attained enlightenment. That's why he's ready to go across China and, like, quell the demons. Oh. So. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I, I did not know that. Um, but I do love that about Doctor Who. And, and you're right, because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, half the time the Doctor's going to get you into trouble, and half the time the Companions are going to accidentally start an intergalactic war and not realize what they've done. And it's just like, <laughs> jump in the blue box and then run. That's all I can think of. And being a Companion would be, like, my top life goal. So it would be awesome. I'm down. Whenever the Doctor wants to show up, it would be great. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you on air. Everybody can just wonder what it is. They can just wonder what the horrible thought that I had, the horrible discovery I had about Doctor Who that might make it impossible for me to enjoy it further. Oh, no. I'm not going to tell you, but just know I thought about it in a certain way. And this is actually kind of ties into mythology that this this reinvention of stories or when you start thinking about the deeper meanings of something and then you go, oh, no, like I may not. I may not be able to deal with this anymore, you know. I had one of those moments with Doctor Who. That makes me very sad, Joshua. I feel like that's my entire experience of film theory, which is (laughs) like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is actually about the, oh, God, oh, no, oh, no. (laughs) It's horrible. But it's also kind of weirdly delightful because you realize that, Oh no, there's there's deeper meaning here even when you think maybe there's not. Like we are cause so often with film in particular, we are just telling ourselves the status quo. We're like re reestablishing, you know, the rules of our world by the end of the film and it's oh <laughs> it's brutal sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which Yeah. Back to mythology, <laughs> right? Telling ourselves stories about ourselves or or um you know what we aspire to be or what our fears are mm. about who we are yeah 
Yikes. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. I mean, film noir came out of a very tumultuous time when you had filmmakers dealing with the fact that most people did not, most Americans did not feel like they could trust the institutions yeah. that had been taking care of them up till up till that point. Mm-hmm. And all of that just like low level stress and anxiety comes out through these movies where everything is corrupted. Nothing is clean. You yeah. know, that upholding the status quo is both lamentable and also the best you can hope for. I mean, just. Yeah. And then underneath that, here's your Western civilization horror show. You start to realize that underneath all that is also like, what if my whiteness isn't as important as it used to be? Mm-hmm. What if my maleness isn't as important as it used to be? You know? Yeah. Good news and bad news, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all on that very, very chipper note. Okay, we're so chipper. I know, we're so <laughs> chipper. Welcome to mythology and all the ways that it deconstructs our reality and makes us very, very sad. <laughs> oh, not necessarily. Let's start exploring okay. then, because in the exploration is the joy. There you go. All right, right. excellent. There you go. I mean, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean you want me to tell you? Yes. No, I don't know what's happening on your show. Yes. All right. We brought you on our show so you could run it. Have fun. <laughs> well, it, I I felt I felt like that was an expectant pregnant pause, but I can't see your faces. So what? What? You mean you can't read our minds? We don't really have a system around here, Mister. Oh God. <laughs> so on that note, Joshua, do you want to bring us into exploration? I I really do, because for me, at least, the exploration is where the joy comes from, even when it's hard, right? Oh, absolutely. For me, this starts with, well, I've I've got a couple of layers of this, like, that I can go into at length, so stop me, right? (laughs) But one of them is, I wanted to start, like, absorbing stories of cultures that were not necessarily my own, Mm -hmm. right? But I didn't want to do it in, like, a big, stupid white guy way. You know, yeah, especially, especially because they're going to become an influence on me and I write fiction and they're going to come out of me some way, Mm -hmm. you know, and if I'm going to, I mean, if I'm just letting them be influences on me, then they may become, you know, something else entirely. And I don't have to be quite as careful to be non, to not appropriate them. Right. Because it's just, I have a lot of influences, you know, but if I'm going to make specific reference or really make use of them in the way that I might a more Western or uh, European influence. I have to be really smart about that. Um, I feel like, which means I have to really get to know that culture as best I can as an outsider, you know? So, and and I do that. I've done that for, uh, I I wrote a Viking fantasy, which is European. So I did not have to be quite, and, and as actually a large chunk of my heritage. So I didn't have to be, super careful with it, but I was specifically writing a Viking fantasy that was also a noir, Mm -hmm. like on purpose, because they're two thirds of the way there anyway, all those sagas, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody knows that they're going to end badly at the beginning, including the person in them. Yeah. But then also I wrote a weird Western and I have been hung up on the sequel to it for years because I really want to include some Native American mythology for lack of a better term and i'm just being really careful about it but it's fun like i'm learning a lot about worldviews and that are different than mine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and for the most like sort of problematic part of that exploration for me i say problematic in that it's uncomfortable for me not like it's a problem itself is that 
this has come up on a couple of other podcasts, so this may or may not be a surprise, but I have escaped evangelicalism with my faith nevertheless intact. That's very impressive. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I say I did it, but <laughs> I feel like there was a lot of like lightning strikes and luck and stuff involved because many, many forces were arrayed against it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so now I am engaging with my sacred text as mythology when that is the way that it ought to be engaged with, except, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying that in a very specific way because we're talking about, uh, you know, a book that is an anthology spread across a couple of thousand years, you know, of collecting things. But some of it is pretty clearly mythology. Like it works like mythology of the ancient Near East. And so now I have to do some of that for looking at my own sacred text. Like, what did it mean? Some of this was written pre-Israelite exile, and some of it was written after the the exile was over, but all of it was collected together after the exile was over. And hey, how does that cultural context influence what they decided to say with this theological text, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but again, that's difficult, but that's where the joy is for me, because I really do feel like I am unpacking layers of the world yeah. whenever I do that stuff. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. That reminds me of something that I've been doing a lot lately, um, which is a sort of inner mythology kind of reckoning, um, for lack of a better turn of phrase there, where I look at what I believe about something, um, you know, about myself in the world or what I believe about how a family should be structured or any of these things that I grew up maybe not questioning or unpacking at all and looking at the ways in which those ideas were influenced by the mythology of the culture or the mythology of my family of origin or, you know, any any of those systems that we learn before we realize that you know there isn't one there isn't there isn't one sacred text that is the sacred text mm-hmm. that ev- you know that that what we're studying you know as storytelling or just you know kind of like i even i i'm tempted to say like what we look at as entertainment sometimes is much deeper on the other end you know for the the culture that you know, for its culture of origin or, you know, alternatively, something that we accept as the truth with a capital T is really just another line of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And how much of this is scary language that is there to control people. And it's a fascinating, it is fascinating to observe my own thoughts about why something in my life is the way it is and have to unpack that and realize, wait a minute, my, my belief system here is not objective reality. It is one of many mythologies, essentially. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Oh, good, because that was long and rambly and no. weird. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, and I have, I have notes about spirituality and sacred text a little later in our script, but hearing you know you both talk about this kind of deep reflection and and that kind of inner work or that kind of deliberate thought and that kind of intentional research um, I realized like this is an area where 
I have not engaged the way that I would like to because I escaped evangelicalism without my faith in tech. Um, not that I'm sure it was ever that fully formed to begin with, but I've never found like a spiritual structure, tradition format like that. I haven't found that place, I guess, where I fit or something that feels right to me. And I do sometimes feel this sort of floundering without something to latch onto in terms of the sacred and it's really an area I'm interested in in exploring. But when I think about text, like there are books that are sacred to me that I doubt anyone else would ever consider sacred. But I read them and study them and learn from them as if they were holy text because they speak to me in that way. But I don't have a, like a, tra- a shared tradition to pull from or mm-hmm. a way to kind of explore those beliefs with people that have studied that more than I have or in a different way than I have and that might have been one of the reasons I felt a little blocked about this topic because it really is an area where I want to find things that I don't know how to find uh, if that makes any sense whatsoever (laughs) because I went shallow and easy like you guys are bringing the the deep and difficult here (laughs) and (laughs) when I thought about exploration I just went to my bookshelf (laughs) I was like there's Joseph Campbell, there's Edith Hamilton, there's Neil Gaiman, there's my 20-year-old copy of The Odyssey. Here, I can I can give you a little bit of a more shallow thing. I'm really sorry that you own Joseph Campbell because he's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, I will say Campbell is very problematic. I am not a fan of the hero's journey and some of that stuff. But I did recently get a book about the mythology of dance and music. That was compiled from notes from before he passed away, and I love it. And I like some of what he says about joy and bliss and the way that we study story. But I definitely go to his work with the sidey, you know, kind of a sidey side eye. So, yeah. I hear <laughs> you. side eye. Yes. <laughs> I hear you on the problems. But I think I like, I don't like any of the mythology as fact or And I know it's not fact, but not even like, here's the solid way the story happened. But as a space for personal exploration that myths give us, because most of what I remember. Oh, yeah, that's what they're for. Yeah. Yeah. And like most of what I remember reading, both in myths and in fairy tales, are very plot driven stories. Like this God did this and then this God did this and then so and so gave birth to the world. And it's just like, here's the things that happened. But I love any kind of retelling or reimagining those kinds of stories as personal, like deep character POV stories. And, and I've realized that that's kind of what I'm drawn to write. So it's, there's just some like interesting potential inspiration there. Well, and I think that a lot of the stuff that we consider to be very plot driven is because we are missing a vital cultural element Mm-hmm. that would have made it more immediate. Right. Now, not necessarily in the creation myths themselves, but like some of the, the, you know, the various stories that you're like, yeah, but this is just Theseus doing stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Whereas if, if, it's, yeah. if you live in the city supposedly founded by Theseus, it's like, no, this is how we are to do stuff, mm-hmm. you know? You know, the, this is... <laughs> What would Theseus do? For real. (laughs) Everybody climb inside that big giant wooden horse. All right, let's go. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, that worked. You quit. That was a good plan. The problem in that story is Troy falling Bye. for it. <laughs> Brought you a gift, giant horse. <laughs> we totally lost. We promised. Bye. <laughs> But, uh, but, I mean, you're also kind of getting into the reason that I kind of think Campbell's garbage. Okay. <laughs> um, like, that Hero of a Thousand Faces stuff is the is probably the, the most famous example, is that here's all this stuff that happens in different mythologies. Let's talk about how that all means exactly the same thing. And I'm like, no, Joe, that's not how this works. <laughs> no, Joe, you know, that's not how this works. I love it. That, I mean, that is just, um, to quote a theologian I like who's actually talking about history, but he makes the point very well for mythology, too, is that... Uh, Caesar only crossed the Rubicon once, and even if he had done it a second time, it would have meant something completely different, Mm -hmm. you know. So the fact that Vishnu and Theseus have overlap does not actually mean that they mean the same thing and did not mean the same thing. Like, the cultural context changes everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why these stories survive, though. That's the good news of why they survive is that we constantly recontextualize them. Right. I mean, that's that's Shakespeare as Ovid fan fiction. You know, (laughs) Ovid wrote satires of Greek myths. Mm -hmm. And I think that Shakespeare did not realize that they were supposed to be read satirically. (laughs) Honestly, because that's a, it's a lost cultural context, right? With, you know, a thousand years in between you. And so it takes them as an influence and turns them into some of his plays. And Mm -hmm. some of the plays are very serious and some of them are ridiculous. And you can't necessarily connect that to whether Ovid meant for it to be serious or ridiculous, you know, yeah. It's recontextualized. It's all different. Yeah. And that's that's how that's how they stay alive. Like that's why they stay alive. So No, I love that. And I I do remember one of those aha moments in school. I think it was seventh grade, when we learned how to read satire. Like I learned satire was a thing. Because I knew sarcasm <laughs> was a thing, but I didn't understand. Yeah. Like and they had us read a modest proposal. And I remember being horrified the first time I read it. Like this, why would someone suggest something this hideous? Like, what is wrong with this guy? And why is my mm-hmm. teacher making me read this? Because she just had us read it cold first. And then it was, okay, this is satire. And here's what that means. And here's how we use it. And this is how we talk back to stories that are, you know, popular in our culture. Here's how we argue things through satirical stories. And I, that just amazed me. Like, I just remember thinking, oh, my God. People are so smart. Like, I don't know how they (laughs) thought of taking this and writing it this way. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Like in terms of how some of that, the subtlety of that would get lost. I mean, could you imagine if somebody read, took commentary that we have on Twitter now without the cultural context of like what's going on in the world and just presented it as prose? (laughs) Without all of the satire that would be lost. Like, oh, that's fascinating. Wow. I have <laughs> joked with my co-writer before that we should rewrite. Uh, hi, Dan. Dan's listening. Dan Swinson, fantastic writer, writes mystery man fiction with me. Also wrote a fantasy novel that I didn't hate. Ah, so go look that hi, up. Hi, Dan. <laughs> a fantasy novel that I didn't hate. That is high praise. Glowing, glowing. It's a tough review. road to hoe, friends. It's a tough road to hoe. <laughs> Uh, but we have joked often, he and I, that we should rewrite Dracula because it's a it's an epistolary. So let's do it as tweets and blog posts. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Which, 
I know, but I, and I just feel like I'm not up to the challenge, but it comes up in conversation a lot. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That would be amazing. Oh God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking you could do part of that with some of Frankenstein too. Is, is, I forget, is Frankenstein... Letters. Frankenstein's not mostly not mostly is it? no, but it opens not mostly. And closes. But there are bits, yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. the beginning and the mm-hmm. end. I am now tweeting you from the North Pole. Where are all the people? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but wait. If you just wait, wait, wait. But if you just started a Frankenstein's monster Twitter account, it would just be quotes from Paradise Lost. <laughs> like it wouldn't be super robust. <laughs> I am taking us so far off task, it's ridiculous. So somebody pull us back and get us into analysis. Noelle, analyze us. Oh, God. Oh, no. You do not want to go down that road with me because I will. (laughs) (laughs) So we've touched on this a little bit already. But why do we love this? Why or not? What does our relationship with mythology look like you know when we when we break it down why why are we here (laughs) why are we all here we are here because you let me pick a topic and this is what you get and clearly that will not be happening again but (laughs) that's fine no but but really why why do you love this thing that you love so much i think i love it because i love symbolism and metaphor and i love story and intertextuality And I think that both as a reader and a writer, there are so many wonderful examples of and opportunities for intertextuality with mythology. And so I went and looked like through my notebooks and files of story ideas and a whole bunch of them draw from mythology. So I had like a short story that I wanted to start that was like a Cassandra vision kind of thing. One about Pandora's box. Joshua, it is a box. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not fighting with you about this again. I just couldn't help it. Um. <laughs> Wood was difficult to come by in ancient Greece. We're not just using it to put junk in. <laughs> we have plenty of clay for that. You make a pot. Yes. He he says Pandora's pot, and I say that would be the great name for a marijuana I usually farm. say jar, jar because Pandora's pot is confusing. <laughs> it's like, how good is that weed? So I say Pandora's jar because yeah. I have poetry in my soul. <laughs> yeah. Pandora's jar that was a box. But <laughs> the strongest thread in my own writing is the underworld and the idea of life after life and the continuation of the human soul and the river sticks, which I re-envisioned as a river flowing into Savannah, Georgia and Hades, but mostly it's Hades. And I have started and stopped a novel about... Hades, like, I don't know, 10 times, this very darkly romantic version of the underworld. And I realized that that book has been in my head for like 20 years and I need to pull it out. (laughs) Wow. That is a massive reimagining, honestly. Like, like, I mean, not in a bad way, but you are turning Hades into a Byronic hero. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not the first one. But I mean... That's not a thing ancient Greece would have thought. No. You know, no. or thought about in that way. No. And it's it's a very like romantic loving take on him. Cuz I kind of like him. He is not darkly romantic in that story with Persephone. No, he's not. He's a creeper <laughs> who wrecks the world for everybody. Yes. 
So it, it needs know. to be really so, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does it, though? Winter is bad. Like, I mean, it's a, you're an agrarian society. Winter's a tough time yes. is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Also, I hate winter. <laughs> so I can say that. I hate it, too. <laughs> it's kind of the worst. But I love that Hades as Byronic Hero is spot on. Um, one of my favorite comic book writers, he didn't do it in the actual run of Justice League, but when he would talk about it, he would talk about how he broadly mapped members of the Justice League to specific classical gods. Oh. Like, he was like, this is the pantheon of the DC universe. Let's just own that, right? And Batman was who he tied to Hades because lives underground, very, very rich, very broody. Mm-hmm. Byronic hero, huh. mm-hmm. you know, and that was the first time that I thought about Hades as a Byronic hero. And I was like, that's one hell of a reimagining from the way the Greeks would have approached it. But I'm into it, yeah. you know. Yeah. 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 It's it's at least I mean, I don't want to say I like it better than a creeper that wrecks it for everything, but it's more interesting <laughs> a story to me now. Yeah. Oh, for know. sure. It's a much more interesting story if Hades is nuanced and not just this evil dude yeah (laughs) to be fair okay i'm not gonna do this because this is not necessarily that show but i will say he's actually more nuanced than a creeper who ruins everything he has reasons and they are good reasons but they are still bad things i mean you know yeah yeah um, yeah 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 and now that i think about it maybe we do need more giant epic mythological stories about creepers creeping and wrecking the world (laughs) because maybe they would learn to stop doing it. Some. Maybe that, yeah. Maybe that's what's missing. Uh huh. Huh. Hmm. Huh. Greek dudes, stop kidnapping women. <laughs> Why? Because yeah. winter happens, you bunch of assholes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Good point. You know. And just you know, <laughs> shitty thing to do to your fellow human. There's that too. Yeah. But maybe we can work that into this. Story. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Don't be a dick. <laughs> the mythology version. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Right. Oh. No, there's a lot of that. That's the cool part. I mean, okay. I mean, it's not. It's not all virtue literature by any stretch. But when it is like sideways virtue literature, you know, like, well. Oh, oh, are you really tough and cool? So you think you can go over there and just kidnap whoever's daughter? Maybe don't, bro. It'll probably cause a war or something. <laughs> Which is the entire Iliad also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is that. So. <laughs> don't go to war because you want to date somebody. Might be like a Paris really Paris did great... not learn the Hades lesson. <laughs> yeah. But for the record, I am not writing virtue fiction with this <laughs> at all. Literally anything before bros is what we've <laughs> determined. <laughs> Just don't. Don't. <laughs> so I think you're probably hearing some of why I love it, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, this, yeah. I love these big stories that tell us things about ourselves. And, and I mean, one of the great literary loves of my life is superheroes, which, which again, I largely reject superheroes as modern mythology, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they do fill something of the, the fairy tale virtue fiction space for us by being larger than life and by making everyday problems into giant metaphor problems that you can actually punch or shoot with lasers out of your eyes, you yeah. know? I mean, Kelly, you were talking about I don't really have a sacred text. And quietly in my head, I'm thinking, uh, could I show you All-Star Superman? Have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Colin? I mean, 
There's a lot of really good example in there is what I'm saying. Now, I just got this flash in my head of the Book of Mormon, the musical, redone as the Book of Kal-El with everybody dressed as Superman and Clark Kent on stage dancing. And I need someone to make that happen right now. Okay, there was a Superman musical. So. Is it really? Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't know that. I think it was Up, Up, and Away. I think something like that. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Wow. Whoops, that was an accidental. I just accidentally derailed uh, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we derail on purpose all the time. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, we do. (laughs) This is what we do here. We have have a structure and a framework so that we can throw it away and or burn it to the ground. Yes. (laughs) Steer it back. Stir it back. Um... Yeah, so while that that example of like Batman as Hades or uh or Superman as Zeus the lawgiver, you know, that stuff's really obvious and on the label and I do like it when people do that expertly. I don't like it when they do it ham-fistedly. Because you want to talk about appropriation, this is a good this is an example is that far too often Superman gets crammed into this very uh Christ-shaped box mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we lose all of his Jewishness. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, there have been interesting things done with Superman, Science Messiah, Space Jesus. There have been interesting things done with that. But it's it neglects this massive amount of Jewish influence that went into the initial conception and that followed him through into the 60s, at least. Mm-hmm. So you lose something with that. I, so anyway, I, I like it when it's on the label but done really, really well. And I like it when it just, you know, kind of happens accidentally, you know, or accretes over time. Yeah. And I like giant real, or I like real problems being turned into metaphors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because when I watch a brightly garbed person do the right thing and punch the really evil guy, you know, who is obviously hideous, you know, like he's physically ugly in order to show his internal darkness you know Mm -hmm. and the internally righteous person you can tell because look at the outfit is is punching that guy i i can't most of the time solve evil by punching it not really but but that is such a simple powerful image from which i can build more nuanced and complex approaches i love that i really like that so Kind of here for it. But I also want to gamify it. Like, I want to burn role-playing games with people and just have them, you know, become those things Mm -hmm. in a story that we're telling together. I mean, anyway, I I love all of that stuff. No, I love it. And I love your appreciation for the costumes. Like, it just that every time you talk about it, it delights me. They're not superheroes without costumes. That's why. I mean... (laughs) They're just just people with powers. We had stories of those before the costume, you know. In fact, they were horror stories. The what they call the radium age of science fiction was a lot of what we would see now as like Marvel's mutants, um, or even or even versions of Superman. And the, the during that that period of the science fiction stories were always here's the next step in evolution. They take over because of course they do. They're the next step in evolution. Boy, everything is shit now. Mm-hmm. We should maybe reevaluate what we consider to be the next step in evolution. Like that was every single one of those types of stories, including by Siegel and Schuster. They did one of those stories and called it reign of the Superman. That was like their first draft. But the thing that, that imprints on our consciousness and becomes this much larger piece is more than the costume, but you can't have it without the costume. So, yeah, 
A lot of symbolism mixed up in there. You can cut. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just love the sheer volume of symbolism that you can cram into a set of clothing. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible the visual shorthand of superhero attire and yeah <laughs> that's a different podcast it is a different <laughs> yes i do them <laughs> yes so don't do it here yes no we, there's no need to go, to go down that road but yes i agree i love it it's delightful but i but i mean there there is for real a lot of that that uh, mythology of semiotics like baked into just the way that superheroes look mm-hmm. right and this imprinted on me when i was a small child and has stuck with me until I was willing and able to think about it in bigger, broader contexts. So it doesn't make it less childish. It doesn't make it less mythological. In fact, I appreciate those aspects of it more and actually think that the people who want to make superheroes listen to my sarcastic air quotes, realistic, are completely missing the point. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, sorry, that started to be something I didn't like, but I think it kind of throws a thing that I love in contrast is what I was trying to do. Sure. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. And it sort of brings us to kind of where we're going next with this, what our synthesis is for mythology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kelly, do you want to launch us into that? Well, I was trying to keep this kind of simple. Because I think the next steps is, you know, to keep writing, but really try to untangle the why do I love this thing idea about the underworld and that whole mythology. Because it's not like it's not something I was raised on. It's not something I've studied very deeply, but it's always spoken to me. And I don't quite understand why it resonates with me the way it does. But I think it comes from like two places. One is the desire to write, and the other is a desire for more spirituality in my life. Um, and I, and part of that is I want to learn more about the sacred feminine and stories of goddesses from broader cultural traditions. So being able to connect, like, the way I would go to mythology to the way I would go to a story that speaks to spirituality or, like, how those traditions overlap is something that I really want to do, but I also feel very out of my depth. Um, this is not something I know how to study. It's like a whole new kind of intellectual and emotional practice for me. So I'm not really sure how to articulate it or exactly how mythology plays into spirituality, but I do believe they're connected. And it's something that I want to, you know, to really study and, and give some time and attention to. You can't see me raising my hand. Ah, I have a comment. Okay. <laughs> so when you mentioned the sacred feminine and stories of goddesses from, you know, other cultures, you know, brought a, a broader view of the divine feminine, I flashed immediately on the goddess oracle that you and I both yes. use. And there's there is a small description for each of the goddesses in the oracle in the guidebook Mm -hmm. that comes with it but you could do you could draw a card each day as your sort of you know spiritual wisdom for the day or your kind of guiding you know focus for the day and then as part of that study could look into more about who 
that goddess is in the culture that she comes from and the stories about her or the stories around her. Oh. And you could you would launch yourself into a into a self study that way that would also kind of give you a jumping off point for a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to think about cultivating those qualities in yourself or in your day or whatever, you would have to figure out the approach that made the most sense to you and, you know, resonated with you spiritually and what you're trying to cultivate. But that might be a really, really good place to start. Oh, I love that. And I love you assigning me homework. That is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about the goddesses in your deck. Like, um, how wide are the influences? You know, you don't have to tell me now. I'm just very curious about it. Yeah. Because as you're talking about that, I think that sounds awesome. And I'm just like, are you going to get Kuan Yin? Yes. Are, yes. are you going to get Asherah? Are you, yes, you yes. know? Yeah. 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 I don't know how many different cultures and traditions are represented, but it's pretty, it's pretty inclusive. Um, or it seems to be, at least to my, you know, <laughs> white Western perspective. Yeah. The majority of them are new to me. So yeah, I have taken that as a very good sign. And it's one of the reasons I, I enjoy that deck so much. But I love that idea, Noelle. I think that that might be a really kind of fun way to set some intention for the new year, too. Mm -hmm. and, and try to incorporate that into a daily practice. So thank you. That's fantastic. Oh, sure thing. And as a as an extension of that homework, this is something that I learned from uh, Nagar Fanuni, who is I think I've mentioned her mm -hmm. on the podcast before. She's a she's a writer and a witch and a spiritual teacher and um, just an all around excellent person. But something that she has recommended is that if you do a card for the day, whether it's an oracle card or a tarot card or whatever, that you snap a picture of it and use that as your lock screen on your smartphone for the day because if yeah. you draw a card in the morning then it's really easy to kind of forget you know oh yeah you know like inanna was my card for the day or artemis or you know the lady of beasts or whoever you know one of those cards that i draw all the time yeah. and uh it's very it's easy to just kind of forget that and brush it off but if if that image comes up every time mm -hmm. you pick up your phone yeah then it takes you back to oh right right focusing on embracing the shadow or yeah. relationships or whatever. I was about to say, God help the world if either or both of you draw Mab or the Morrigan on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> well, or Kali. Or Kali. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Pele. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. Well, Noel, because Pele is the card I pull the most often. Like, I love it that you pull that ridiculous one so often. how often I pull Pele or Freya. Like, those are the two, but Pele comes to me all the time. I love that. So, and now I always think, oh, this is super cool. Like, goddess of volcanoes. And oh my God, that speaks to my soul. But I couldn't write, like, I couldn't call to memory the words that are on that card. And so I don't feel like I'm deeply engaging. It's like a momentary experience or kind of this moment of joy. But you're right, because I'm not meditating on the card. Yeah. yeah, so you're right. I think it's that follow-up and that meditation and that continued thought that I'm missing. And that is a really important piece to add. So thank you for that. Homework. Homework. I love it. I know it. how you love homework. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so Joshua, where are you with synthesis? Well, I mean, 
some of this, this is, I want to talk about like things that impact my greater life uh, that are sort of separate from my fiction, but I shouldn't because they right. aren't, you know, um, mm-hmm. they, they are sort of orders of magnitude, brighter or dimmer anyway. But one thing is that I, I, uh, I either need to get serious <laughs> about <laughs> writing something that takes inspiration from mythology that comes from a culture that is deeply not mine. Like I need to get serious about just biting that bullet and doing it as well as I can, but however imperfectly mm-hmm. and just, and just do it. Cause I really am afraid to do harm with that. Right. But at the same time, I mean, these are really, these are really amazing stories. And they, and in the case of the one I have specifically in mind is like that, the weird Western uh, sequel where a lot of the friction, cultural fic- friction is between the, the old West and you know, Native American tribes, right? So anyway, so I need to get, I feel like I really need to be serious about that. Of course, at the same time, I don't need more things on my to write list. So <laughs> tough call. And and then kind of on, on the more spiritual side, I, this is less synthesis and more like, I guess synthesis as, I'm trying to think of the right, the right English term, the right grammar term, um, like progressive present tense, <laughs> like I am always synthesizing. What it means for me to take ultimately seriously a sacred text that was not written for me in my time and in my place, but that I still believe very seriously has things to tell me about my time and about my place. And part of that is digging deeper into the way that it was, that it evolved and and changed and permutated within a culture that was not monolithic itself, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like I can say before the common era Israel Mm -hmm. and like, that's one thing and it super isn't, you know, so I have to, both of these require more study from me, honestly, which sounds like it's a very cerebral thing. uh, And it is like, I got to get it into my head, but it's specifically so that I can get those things like into my heart for lack of a better, you know, turn a phrase because that then I can live it and I can write it right Mm -hmm. you both you both really encapsulated some things that I'm thinking about um, as next steps really really well actually and I think that what it comes down to for me is just to write more Mm -hmm. you know as I'm examining the you know like the mythologies of my own psyche to bring it back to last week, you know, to just to just write more about that and write about it openly and honestly and kind of do some more of that unpacking and exploration in public, as scary as that is. But I think that, you know, whenever I see someone else doing that or hear someone else doing that, I go, oh, yes. And then I'm inspired to reexamine my own thought process or my own belief system. Yeah. So, yeah, I think writing, I think writing more, more often is my next, is is really my next step. I love that. I, and I would really like to see you do more of that because you are a wonderful writer and I learn oh, something you. from everything you post. So this may or may not work, but I feel like in the, in the spirit of giving people homework, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're talking about mythology, right? And you're talking about unpacking your own mythologies. And like I said, one of the things that I love very much about superhero literature is this idea that we will we will take an idea 
and then like it's an idea or a problem, you know, capital I, capital right. P. Yeah. And we will put it into supervillain clothing and then we will punch it, you know. <laughs> and so I sort of like if you're unpacking your own personal mythology, do it in the language of mythology. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're punching your own personal patriarchies or yeah. what or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, how do you how do you personify internalized transphobia, for example? Like what do you yeah. what does that look yeah. like? Yeah. 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 That is wow. Like that is a rich and crunchy uh way to go about doing some of that writing. I'm I like we'll give that some thought for sure. I want to be first in line to read anything you write that involves punching. I'm just putting that out there right now. <laughs> or, lasers or lasers from your, from eyes, your eyes. Or boomerangs or yeah. whatever. Lassos. But if, if, you, if you turn symbolically and you're punching transphobia, I want to read that immediately. <laughs> I'm just saying. You'll be the first to know. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Joshua, what is your favorite part of mythology? Well, I mean, is it is it a cheat if I just say superheroes are really? No. I mean, I just got done no. saying they're not really mythology, but they kind of are. So <laughs> I'm just going to cheat and say superheroes. They do mean so much. And I don't just mean to me personally, but I mean, they they are they are fictional vessels that are built to carry enormous ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if there is a thing that we have sort of lost as a post-Enlightenment culture, we don't make those things very often, you know? Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not prepared to say that superheroes are the last ones that we made, but if we made another one since, I can't think of them. I'm I'm you know, that might be myopia. I'm a little focused on the superhero, but <laughs> but they really are they're just they just can carry the weight of these incredibly huge thoughts and ideas. And I, and I think that's mythology's job, right? It can also entertain. It can also instruct. But really, they're stories that are big enough to carry the big ideas. Yeah. Strong enough to carry the big ideas. Mm-hmm. And so there, look, I cheated. That's two favorite things. That's fine. That's what I like about <laughs> mythology, and that's why I like superheroes. No, I so. really like that about them being big enough to carry big ideas. Because I think my favorite part is like the enduring nature of shared symbolism and like the enduring intertextuality that it gives us. And because they are big stories and they are big ideas and it gives us different ways to engage with big story and big ideas. And I think that's my favorite, favorite part. (laughs) I'll own that for now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think my favorite part is related to your favorite part. I love the you know the enduring nature of these stories, but also the opportunity for reimagining. I like the way that that these things have hung on, but people will take them and write them into their own narratives um over the summer. The uh, library system in my town had a reading by three poets of a poem that they had had collaborated on called I Am Not Cursed, which was a retelling of the myth of Persephone and Demeter as a sort of a modern kind of dysfunctional family story. (laughs) 
And it was, I mean, it was absolutely delightful and so thought provoking. It was uh, three local poets, Chi Chi Stewart, Laura Lee Bennett, and Elizabeth Carol Hayden each wrote one of the characters in the myth of Persephone and Demeter, and then embodied them in this really interesting way where they were both reminiscent of, you know, the the characters that we know, but also, you know, brought into this, this, this modern context that was really very funny. I mean, Hades rode a motorcycle and worked on motorcycles because of course because he did. Because of course he did. And I'm so glad you told this story because when you told me about that performance, I was like, I wish I could have gone so badly. But Joshua Noel texted me while she was watching it. And she said, Hades has a motorcycle. And I was like, of course he does. Yep. <laughs> of course he rides a motorcycle. And it was just, I mean, you know, and Persephone was so funny because she had this kind of rebellious teenager thing going and it was fantastic it was it was truly delightful um they're looking to get this poem published but I hope that it will I hope that it's something that will continue to be performed because having three distinct voices really I mean it it was it was delightful and to have this story reimagined in this way was fantastic I would love them to bring that to St. Louis because I would absolutely buy a ticket and go see that so as we're wrapping up our conversation about mythology, uh, it's time to turn to anticipation of our next topic. And Noelle, the next topic is yours to choose. So what's it going to be? So thinking about the momentum behind this podcast, you know, why I wanted to do this thing in the first place, I settled on the word creativity. Mm-hmm. Orgasm is about feeling lit up, inspired, and creative. And I've been struggling with that a lot lately. But the thing I keep turning to that seems to add fuel to the creative fire is dark stories, twisty stories with ambiguous or unhappy endings. So next time, I think we should get orgasmic about darkness. And I didn't have a spontaneous orgasm before, but when you said the creative fire of dark stories, that pretty much did it for me. So (laughs) that will be fantastic. (laughs) All right. Shall I close us out? Yes, ma'am. All right. That's it for today. To connect with us on Twitter and Instagram, follow me at Noelle Aloud and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag orgasm. You can also go a little deeper by visiting the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum and join in the discussion. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks find you on the interwebs? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. And if anybody takes wild issue with anything I've said today, you can find me on Twitter at (laughs) Joshua Unruh. I did say at me, so do it. Do it. (laughs) Do it now. Like all Chippers Media Podcasts, Orgasm is 100% patron supported. Just a dollar a month or more gets you access to the live chat and Discord where you can hang out with me and Noelle and Joshua and all the Chippers patrons. So visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to support the show and to help other people find us. 
or post about your orgasmic experience on your favorite social media platforms. Explosive inspiration is best when shared with friends. We will be back next time to talk about darkness. Until then, we'll leave you with the words of Thomas Aquinas, who said, Because philosophy arises from awe, a philosopher is bound in his way to be a lover of myths and poetic fables. Poets and philosophers are alike in being big with wonder. <laughs>